I had a friend in high school, and whenever I went over to his house, it seemed like his mom was never happy to see me. Didn't seem like she liked me. It didn't seem like she wanted me there. And to this day, I'm not too sure why. But whenever I was over there, I would try and be extra nice because this lady did not like me. She would always rant about the news and current events and controversial topics. And I would try and pick her side on whatever she was saying. So some days she would say, did you, did you hear about what the government just did, this decision they made? And I wouldn't know, but I would just say, yeah, it's, it's terrible. Why would they do that? And she would say, actually, I really liked it. She, she was a hard lady to read, and so most times it backfired when I tried to pick her side. Uh, one time she said, um, here's a question for you. If a tree falls in the forest and no one is there to hear it, does it make a sound? You can think about that. It's kind of this classic philosophy puzzle. If a tree falls in the forest, no one's there to hear it, does it make a sound? And I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take her side. And so I said, of course it makes a sound. If a tree falls in the forest, it still makes the sound waves. It still makes sound even if we're not there to hear it. It's pretty narcissistic to think that the world stops revolving if you're just not there. Turns out she disagreed. Once again, blew up in my face. But during high school, I started to think more and more about these, these grand philosophical questions. And I kept a, a little notebook, just one of the little dollar store ones, with me. And I would write down questions that I had. Questions about time and death and sounds and colors and, and free will. And I wrote questions about God. Why does evil exist? Why does God let evil exist? Did God make evil? How did Jesus rise from the dead? How did they choose which books to put in the Bible? Does God have a plan for my life? Is it possible for me to screw up God's plan for my life? Is it possible for me to screw up God's plan for other people's lives? How, how do I know that I'm saved? How do I know I'm actually a Christian? And these things that started as an intellectual exercise, they, they turned into an existential crisis. Have you ever had this before? You get stuck in this cycle of what ifs and how do I know? Questions like, what if I picked the wrong career? What if I married the wrong person? What if I'm going to the wrong school? What if I moved to this place, but God actually wanted me here? When people are in high school, you've got to make a lot of decisions about the future. And there's a lot of pressure on you to make the right thing. But I got news for you, high school kids. Once you graduate, the decisions get harder and they even affect more people. You have kids and you decide, where should I send my kids to school? Should we move and I'll raise my kids over here for a better job or do we stay closer to family but I don't, I'm not going to make as much money here? Questions like this keep revolving and popping up around. Maybe you're looking ahead into this new year. Happy New Year, by the way. And you're, you're thinking of these questions about big decisions that you have to make. Or maybe you're looking back on your life and you're looking at these things and you're not asking these questions out of fear, you're asking these questions out of regret. Did I do the right thing? Today we're going to be looking at what God's Word has to say about these things. The book of Romans is going to be answering this question for the next two chapters. Have God's plans failed? And the answer is, as you would expect, no. God's plans have not but guess what? It gets even better because we're going to see that these things that give us fear and anxiety can actually, when, when viewed biblically and properly, turn into things that will give us rest and can even be the motivation and source of rejoicing. 
in our lives. So to do this, let's look at the book of Romans chapter 9. We started actually at the beginning of last year, at the beginning of 2021, walking through the book of Romans, this, this grand book of the Bible, this fantastic book. And Paul has been laying out this incredible argument, this incredible story of our predicament as humans and as Christians as a whole. He's been showing how all of humanity is broken. We're in need of redemption. We're dead in our sin and we rightfully suffer all of the consequences of it. He showed us this and it doesn't matter if you're from a particular religious background like the people of Israel. It doesn't matter if you have a Jewish heritage and you have the Torah and you grew up going to synagogue and doing the right rituals. It doesn't matter if you were that or if you were some pagan, Gentile, caught up in wild living, both people are equally in need of redemption. And then Paul was showing how because Jesus came, we can now share in his righteousness, in his right standing with God, if we choose to follow him by faith. Not as something that we earn, but as a free gift from God. This is what's given to us. And then in Romans 8, Paul is showing these incredible consequences and implications of this Christian life and how we're adopted into God's family, how we're co-heirs with Christ. And it's this big celebration. Nothing can separate us, neither height, nor depth, nor... And in the middle of this celebration, Paul anticipates an objection, this big party going on. What can separate us? Nothing. And there's someone in the back, "Um, excuse me, Mr. Paul, apostle. Yeah, just small question. Um, What about... What about the Israelites, the Jewish people that decided not to follow Jesus? Didn't you pick Israel to be God's people, yet they rejected your son? Did something go wrong in the plan there? Hmm? Your promises not come true for them? And so Paul is actually looking at this objection, this question, that in the face of Christ's redemption, What does this mean for the people that didn't accept him? Did God's promise, did God's plan fail? That's the first objection, this first question that we're looking at today. In Romans chapter 9, we're going from verses 9 to 13. This is where we begin. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. So he's saying, no, the word of God has not failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all who are descended from Israel belong from Israel. There's an equivocation there. The nation of Israel and God's people. We'll get into it. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But, quote, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Paul's saying, no, God's words, his plans, his promises have not failed just because some people from Israel have rejected Jesus. Abraham started the Jewish nation. Take you back to Genesis. He started the Jewish nation. The Jewish nation received the law and the prophets, and through this line came Jesus. We've been studying this during Advent, the long line from Abraham to Jesus. And when he came, some of the Jews loved him, some of the words hated him. Did God's plan fail No. What he's talking about here in these verses is Abraham and his wife Sarah and three possible types of offspring that can come from them. There's three possible types. There can be a genetic offspring, those who are genetically, biologically related to Abraham and Sarah. 
There are spiritual offspring, those who share in the faith of Abraham, those who worship the God of Abraham. There's genetic, spiritual, and then there's both, people that are both genetically related and spiritually related to Abraham. So consider the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, before he met Jesus, he would have been uh, only genetically offspring of Abraham. But then, when he became a Christian, he would be the third type. He would be genetically and spiritually, so both descendants of Abraham. I am only the second type. I am only a spiritual descendant of Abraham. I would assume most of you watching today are as well. We are those who are not genetically related to Abraham, but are brought in to the family of faith. So Paul is explaining here, it's less about your biological birth and more about your real birth. It's less about your earthly father and it's more about your heavenly father. Some of you were born into believing families and homes and that's fantastic, but it's of no benefit if you don't know Jesus. When you come to know Jesus, you're not going to point back at your parents. This is the relationship. You're going to point up. This is my relationship. It's not this father. It's this father who determines whether you are part of the offspring of Abraham. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? It's great that your parents love him. Honestly, it is, it is a blessing to have believing parents. But the line into the kingdom of heaven is single file. There are no grandchildren in heaven. You don't get in because you're related to this person. You get in because you are a direct child of God. And Abraham is used as a case study here. If you remember Abraham, we've kind of been talking about him a lot because he's used so much in the book of Romans. It goes all the way back to Genesis. And a question, when God came to Abraham, was he part of Israel or was he outside of Israel? Well, there was no Israel to be part of. He was a, a Gentile, a pagan as well. He was from a godless family and a godless cult or religion. He was on the wrong team. God came to him and brought him on the right team. That's where we start. Early in Genesis 10 and 11, there's a group of people and they decide they're going to construct the Tower of Babel. This is trying to bring heaven on earth without God, without his presence. One of the people was involved was Abraham's father, Terah, T-E-R-A-H. And this took place in modern day Iraq. That's where we would refer to it today. In Joshua 24, actually, he kind of lays out this family tree when he's referring to Abraham. Joshua 24, verse 2. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, and they served other gods. Godless people in a godless, godless place doing godless things. Let's keep reading. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. So we had a son and then two grandsons. And I gave Esau the hill country of Seir, to possess, but Jacob and his children went down into Egypt. Jacob's son was Joseph. Joseph went to Egypt, the family went with him. And then they were enslaved, all of Israel. It's the book of Exodus. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. So they come out, and that's Joshua, and they go through the desert, okay? This is the quick family lineage of Abraham. Long ago, Terah served other gods, and God came to them godless people in a godless place doing godless things and said, I'm going to make you my people. God took Abraham. God chose him. God saved him. God moved him to a new place and made him the beginning of a new family and a new lineage. This is what happens when you bring up Abraham. All these things come to mind. 
And then he offers to Abraham and his wife Sarah a supernatural firstborn son of the promise. They were both so old, they were barren and unable to have children. He says, I'm going to give you a son. God says this to Abraham when he's making his covenant. From him will come a great nation. I'm going to give you a land. And from these people will come the Messiah, the blessing of all the world, Jesus Christ. So the offspring of Abraham comes all the way down to Jesus. This line of Abraham is made for the coming of Christ, which we celebrate every single year on December 25th. So the genealogy of Abraham may not be so distant from your life as you may assume at the outset. The argument that Paul's making is this. Let's let's wrap this all up. The promise isn't that all Jewish people will love Jesus. It's that the Jewish people will bring forth Jesus and God will save the Jews and Gentiles through Jesus, the offspring of Abraham. He says, I'm going to use you. You're going to be my people for a purpose and I will use you. So being part of Israel is no guarantee of being part of God's family. It's not who your earthly father is, it's who your eternal father is. Being part of Israel is no guarantee of following God any more than being in church makes you a Christian or being in McDonald's makes you a Big Mac. So let's keep reading this argument now. This is where it gets a little bit more uh, difficult and complicated. Verse 9, For this is what the promise said. This is the promise made to Abraham. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. This is the promised child Isaac we were just talking about. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, by our forefather Isaac, so Abraham and Sarah have Isaac, Isaac and Rebekah now, then we're talking about the grandkids. When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. There's a lot to unpack there. So let's get to it. Jacob and Esau, these are the grandsons of Abraham, and they are used as a case study as well for God's choosing, how he chooses people, how he calls people and uses people for his holy purposes. They are twins, they're twin brothers. And when, here's some Bible trivia, when did Jacob and Esau start fighting? In the womb. They were fighting in the womb. Poor, poor mama, she had a cage fight going on in her stomach. It says that the boys were fighting in the womb. And boys will fight. If you grew up with brothers, you know that there's conflict in the house. God bless my mom. She had four boys. It started in the womb. And God tells her that the older will serve the younger. So in this time, the older, the oldest sibling got double the inheritance. They would be the patriarch over that generation of the family. You owned the land and you used that land to conduct business. And God occasionally upended the birth order in redemption history for his purposes. He did this with Cain and Abel. He also did this with Isaac and Ishmael, their father, Isaac. And later he did this with Joseph and his brothers, the guy with the the coat of many colors. He did this with them as well. God can invert any time that he wants to. And so the boys are fighting to see which is going to be firstborn in the womb. And when their mother, Rebecca, is giving birth, it says in 
Genesis 25 and 26, that they're fighting even during birth. So she's giving birth, hard enough. Giving birth to twins, hard enough. Giving birth to twins that are fighting. And Esau is born first, and when he comes out, Jacob is actually holding him by the heel. That's how intense this fight is for birth order. And when they're born, the parents played favorites. A classic blunder of parenting. Maybe your mom and dad played favorites. And this happened and it led to generations of division. So dad was said to love Esau. Esau, uh, well, mom preferred Jacob. Dad loved Esau, mom preferred Jacob. Esau means hairy. He was a hairy guy. It also means red. He was a hairy, red-headed kid. He came out of the womb looking like Elmo. And Jacob means trickster. He who grasps at the heel. It's this ancient Hebrew idiom for trickster, which is what Jacob means. He's a con man. Who had that sibling growing up? And they would always seem to weasel their way out of trouble. They would get under your skin and they would annoy you and frustrate you. And you would explode and then your parents would come and you would get in trouble, but never them. That was me. I thrive in that. It's one of my many spiritual giftings. Now, which of these two brothers was a good boy? Neither. They're both bad boys. If God picked only the good people, then nobody would get picked. But God picks bad people and he does good things. These two brothers are very, very different. One is a dad's boy, one is a mama's boy. Esau would go out hunting, and he would eat the meat of the animals that he slayed with his own hands. And Jacob, he would stay home, work on his blog, and drink smoothies. Esau drives a diesel-lifted truck, and Jacob drives a Prius. Esau is a power lifter, and Jacob does yoga. Esau watches boxing, and Jacob cries during Disney movies. This is all in the Hebrew, by the way. I've studied this very closely. So these boys grow up, and Esau is out hunting, and Jacob is at home. Esau comes back from hunting, and he's very, very hungry. If you've been out hunting before, you come back hungry. I'll tell you that. And this is what Jacob, the trickster, says, the younger brother. Oh, you're hungry? I'll trade you your birthright, your inheritance as firstborn, for a bowl of soup. Better be some good soup. I will trade you this for a bowl of soup. And Esau says, mm, deal, deal. He trades his inheritance for a bowl of soup. Delayed gratification. That is not a strength of many young men. Our culture doesn't teach us as well. We say, spend what you want. Don't wait. Move in together. Don't wait for that. Young men eat and drink and smoke and sleep as much as they want, when they want, with whom they want. Esau is a case study for the dangers of delayed gratification that will have generations of impact. I'm hungry. Trading an inheritance for a bowl of soup seems great. We do this all the time. We do. We trade an eternal inheritance in relationship with God for things that feel good in the moment. It's besides the point. So he takes the deal. Esau takes the deal and he loses his birthright. It's traded for a bowl of soup. Now Jacob replaces Esau, giving up the line of the Messiah, the lineage whom the Messiah, the Savior of humanity, the Redeemer of the cosmos, will come through for a bowl of soup. I'll take the soup. God works through bad people, and he does good things in spite of their bad choices. Okay, now we come to verse 13. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Not a verse you see on many coffee mugs. 
No one's got that tattooed on their ankle. Uh, at face value, it seems arbitrary and strange. I can say that. Why would God hate people, especially before they're born? How can a loving God hate people? Different theologians, they, they work this out and tease this out and explain this in different ways. Romans chapter 9 is it's one of the most hotly debated portions of Scripture still to this day. So I'm going to try and give my best explanation of it. And you may disagree with me. That's okay. This is one of these issues where Christians can disagree. and We can still be in fellowship together. We can open up our Bibles. We can share our reasons. We can, we can work this out and we can still worship together. The only place where everyone agrees on everything is a cult. Much better to be in a church than a cult. This is the difference between open-handed and close-handed issues. Close-handed issues are things that I will not negotiate on. What are close-handed issues? That God's Word is the perfect, holy, and inspired Word of God. That Jesus, the Son of God, came, was incarnate, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, and died on the cross for our sins, and He rose from the grave and is now ascended with the Father, and He will return to judge the living and the dead, that He is the King over heaven and earth. That's a closed-handed list of topics. I will not negotiate on those. But here are some open-handed topics that Christians can disagree on. We would call them theologically secondary. How old is the earth? Old enough. Uh, should I send my kids to public school, private school, or homeschool them? Yes. Pick one. Should we uh, baptize them with water at this age or at this age? And should we do a sprinkle or a cross or, or full immersion? Different people do it different ways. That's okay. Is single predestination true or double predestination or kind of some will approach? Three, three, oh, I can't talk. Some free will approach. These are things that we can work out and discuss and disagree on as Christians. So with its, it's with an open hand and a humble heart that I'm going to give my best understanding of this passage as I can today. Some would read this passage in verse 13. Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, and take it at face value and think, yep, that's how it goes. God hates some people and he loves some people, and he's God and that's okay. This is about eternal damnation and salvation. That's not how I understand it. To understand what's being said here, there's two things you got to take into consideration. One, the original word, and two, the original quote the original language and the original quote. What's being said here and where is it being said from? So the word hate, in this case, it's not as strong as our English language would make it out to be. Words are like colors. Colors have many hues. So you could take the color blue and you can have one version of blue that's so, so light, it almost looks white. And you can have a version of the color blue that's so, so dark, it almost looks black. The word hate here can be similar to that. Some translations say, instead of hate, it says rejected, did not accept that God chose Jacob instead of Esau to pass over, not to choose, not to prefer. The big idea is that God says here, there's two boys and I'm going to choose one of these boys through his line to bring the Messiah, to bring Jesus into the world. Not this one. I'm going to choose this one, not this one. And it says earlier, before they had done anything. Jesus uses the same word hate also. You can see it in another use, the same word. Luke 14, 26, he says this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, if we take this hate with our English understanding, it seems to lead to a lot of contradictions. 
Does God actually want you to hate and despise your mother and father? No, we're called to honor our mother and father. What about your spouse, your wife? Does God want you to hate your wife? Wives, you could speak into this. If your son, if your son, uh oh, if your husband says to you, I hate you because Jesus told me to, what would you say to him? Go back and study that passage again. Or your children, does God want us to hate children? Should we go to the kids' wing and start thumping them like whack-a-mole? No. <laughs> We're called to actually emulate children, that unless we have faith like them, we cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. But the kingdom of heaven was made for a place, for a people such as these. And even your brothers and sisters, should you hate them? Ah, God, I'll negotiate on that one. No, not at all. But here as well, God is saying this. Jesus is saying, you need to prefer the relationship with me, with God himself, as your first priority above all things. You must choose this, prefer this, pick this over the others. Love your parents, love your spouse, love your children, love your siblings, but your relationship with God is first priority. And the reason for this is that this is what is most glorifying to God and what is best for you. Unless you love God first, you can't love others properly. Why? Because you're going to be putting them in the place of God. That's idolatry. You're going to be putting a weight on them that they cannot bear. If you're putting your spouse above God, you're going to be looking for them to do for you what only God can do for you. If you make your kids God, you're going to be putting such a burden on them, it's going to break them. But if you have God's love and his forgiveness as the first place in your life, you can bestow this to everyone else. Don't despise, but rather have your priorities in order. I made Jacob the first priority, the first choice in bringing the line of Jesus. So that's the first part of this understanding. I would contend that hate means not to choose. The second part of understanding this is understanding that Paul, when he says, as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, he's quoting something. He's quoting actually chapter one of Malachi. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. And in this, the time that Malachi is written, God's people are struggling. Their borders are being invaded. Their economy was collapsing. They all wrestled with sickness and illness. Their government was a joke. No comment. They look at God and they say, you said you loved us. Look at this. Look at all of this. Have you ever said this before? Have you ever prayed this prayer? And God responds to them. Do I not love you? Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. He's talking about two brothers, yes, but he's using them as shorthand for the nations that will come to them. He says, hey, did I not choose you to be my people? So in referring to Jacob and Esau here, he's referring to the nations that will come and not only the individuals. Why? Jacob becomes a nation of Israel and Esau becomes a nation of Edom. And these two people groups will be in conflict with each other until the time of Jesus comes. Jesus was from the line of Jacob and Herod, the king who would have Jesus destroyed, comes from the line of Esau. So there's this transition from two boys to two nations. God is saying, look, I've chosen you, Jacob. I've chosen you, Israel, to bring my blessing to the world through you. Despite of all your shortcomings and your failures and your unfaithfulness, I will bring a savior to the world through you. Look at Israel in the Old Testament. It seems like they can't do the right thing for longer than two pages at a time. Look at the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew. It's filled with screw-ups and failures. And he says, I'm going to choose you to work 
through you. So let's recap. I've covered a lot of ground. What's Paul saying here? Paul is addressing the concern that somehow God's plans have failed because not all who are in Israel as a nation have accepted Jesus. Did God somehow mess up? Paul says no. Those who are truly God's people are not those who are Abraham's biological offspring, but rather his spiritual descendants. The promise to Abraham was that he would have a son, from his son would come a great nation, and from this nation would come the Messiah that would bless the world through this line. And God was faithful to this. And part of this involves God's choosing which of Abraham's children and grandchildren the Messiah would come through. And this line of descendants is going to Jesus filled with broken people that God chooses. I will work through you in spite of you. And now if you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, you are part of this group. If you are in Christ, you are part of Abraham's spiritual offspring, part of this group that God has called to be recipients of, messengers of, and conduits of his grace and mercy and love and peace in the world today. So what does this mean for us, we who are Abraham's spiritual descendants? There's three things, at least, that we can pull from this. The first is this, recognize God's calling in your life. Recognize it for what it is. If you are a Christian, God saw you in eternity past. Before you did anything, he chose you. He chose that he would offer this extension of grace to you, that he would send his son to come and die and rise for you. Before you loved him, he loved you. Before you knew him, he knew you. Before you pursued him, he pursued you. Before you did anything for God, he did everything for you. This God is so great, so grand, so glorious and good that his love for you stretches all the way from eternity past to eternity in the future. Which means you should sleep well tonight and you should wake up with hope for tomorrow, recognizing a love like this. Second is responding to God's invitation. We respond to this. We, we respond to this every day. But if you are not a Christian, have you responded to this? What do, you, what do you think about Jesus? You hear all these grand things. Maybe you wonder, why am I even watching this today of all the days? Why, why am I on this link? Why am I watching this thing? Why does this kind of sound interesting? Maybe God is starting to awaken this in you. Maybe he's speaking to you today. Maybe he's pursuing you. Why does this sound like hope for me? Why does this sound good and true and beautiful? Maybe God is saving you. Have you responded to this calling? Have you responded to this thing God has done for you today? Would you respond to God's invitation? And then step three is this. For those of us who have recognized God's calling, to those of us who have responded to God's calling, the third thing we do is this, and this wraps back to the beginning, is we celebrate the sovereignty. We celebrate God's sovereignty. Sovereign means overall, in control. There is nothing that happens that takes God by surprise. He views all of eternity at the same time and he sees it all and he works all things together for his perfect purposes. And when we celebrate this sovereignty, that the God who can do whatever he pleases has chose to love me and chose to love you, you can rest in this. And when you rest in this, you are freed from fear from some of the fears that we talked about in the beginning. There's three fears that I listed at the beginning. 
that God can free you from. The first is the fear of not being chosen. The fear of not being chosen. I've had people come up to me and say, hey, I, I love God and I'm terrified that I'm not chosen by Him to be in His family. Seeing God's sovereignty, it frees us from this fear. God is in control and He's made this extension of grace to everyone. But if you're wondering right here, right now, how do I know I'm saved? This is how I answer the question. A couple questions. One, do you love God? Do you love Him? If the answer is yes, bring you to question two. Is the Holy Spirit in you? And three, is the Holy Spirit transforming you? Is there evidence in your heart that God is in you, that you are loving Him, and is there change in your life? Not perfection. We all fail and fall short of the glory of God. But do you love God, this love for Him, which is produced by the Spirit, even the desire for grace is a form of grace, but do you love Him, and can you see Him at work in your life and in your heart? If you can answer that, then I would say, yeah, you're in God and He is in you. Second fear, when we celebrate the sovereignty, we're freed from the fear that somehow God's plans have failed, or also the fear of ruining God's plans in the lives of others. If God's totally in control, we can see in His Word and we can see in our life how He weaves all these things together. Here's the greatest justification for the claim in Romans 8, that all things work together for the good, for those who are called according to His purpose. That includes us. All things work together for our good. But the greatest proof of such a claim is the death of Jesus, right? God sent His Son and what looks like a failure, right? They thought, the people at the time thought, okay, he's going to deliver us. He's going to lead a, a violent revolution. He's going to slay our enemies. And what happens? God's enemies slay Jesus. That doesn't look like a victory. That looks like the biggest failure of God's plans ever. I'm going to send Jesus. Oh, they got him. And what happens? Christ's death and resurrection is the source of our liberation and our salvation itself. All things work together. So if God can redeem that and uses that for his purposes, I'm not worried about his plans failing in my life and I'm not also terrified of ruining his plans in other people's lives. I'm not bound in this fear when I celebrate the sovereignty. But some days we still fall into this, right? Of course. And when we fall into this, we, we pray and we confess, God, I confess that you are sovereign and I am not. Help me to believe this. Help me to trust this. Help me to be faithful in the moment, knowing that you work all things together for my good and your glory. And finally, for us, all of Bayview Glen, we are marked as people who have been called to be part of God's people for his chosen purpose, according to his purpose, like Israel, to be the recipients of and conduits of God's mercy and grace and love and peace and justice and power on earth. Where are we being called? When I say we, I mean you. Church is a body of believers. It's made up of individuals. Where are you being called? Where are we being called? Where are we being sent? We aren't called to understand how everything is going to work out. We're called to trust, we're called to be God's people, and we're called to be faithful in the moment. So have God's promises and plans failed? Today we've seen absolutely not. His plans and His promises have not fallen short. And so in the midst of our chaos, and in the midst of the unknown of another year and all that it may hold, we celebrate the sovereignty.